Welcome. This is the Business of Vulnerability, the podcast that shares the wonderful work that individuals, organizations, and communities are doing around the world to try and help those who are most vulnerable. Welcome to the Business of Vulnerability podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Dell Brady. Dell is the executive director of the Greater Salt Lake chapter of the American Red Cross. Uh, it's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, Dell, can you explain the difference between the Salt Lake chapter of the Red Cross and maybe any other Red Crosses that we may know about? Yeah, thanks, Blake, for having me, and, and great to be here with you. Uh, yes, the American Red Cross covers the entire United States. The American Red Cross, is there other Red Crosses for, like, is there international? Uh, so is there like an English Red Cross and an Australian Red Cross? Yeah. Ah, interesting. Are, yeah. How, do, yeah, how does it... Um, how does it function? Is it like a is it like a franchise model where it's set up, or, or or is there like how much overarching support do you get from the the larger Red Cross organization? Yeah, it's I guess you could characterize it as franchises in a little bit. There's what's called the International Federation of the Red Cross, headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland, and uh, that was established by Henry Dunant. From that, different Red Cross associations sprouted up around the world. And right now, many countries have their own Red Cross. So just as we are the American Red Cross, there is a Red Cross of Cambodia, Red Cross of Croatia, uh, Red Cross of the United Kingdom. And we're also part of the same federation as, say, the Red Crescent, the Red Crystal. Um, and just to mention that the symbols are not particular to a religious affiliation. It's mm -hmm. more what's acceptable in that culture. And for us in the Western Red Crosses, the cross has been a symbol of medical help and assistance for a long time. And so that's why we have it and not because of some Christian tie. Interesting. I, I didn't know that. And and what are the other, you said the Red Crescent and Red Diamond, are they more like geographically located in areas where, where a cross is less um, appealing? That's correct. Yes. So yep. what would be more, the more appropriate symbol for that geography? Yeah. Interesting. And is it, does it all revolve around kind of health? Is that kind of the, whatever you have the symbol that revolves around that or does the symbol vary depending on uh, the, the culture? Yeah, it, it all revolves around alleviating suffering. And mm. depending on the needs of that country or geography, the services offered may differ. So here for the American Red Cross, we actually have five main lines of service. And that's based off of what our core competencies are. So if someone else can do it better and more efficiently, then that's terrific. You know, go at it. We will stick to what we can do efficiently and effectively. Those five lines of service are blood collections and blood products, disaster relief, training and certification. So like a CPR certification, even things like uh, lifeguarding certification or babysitting safety. And then services to the armed forces where we support the military community and their families uh, before deployment, during deployment, after deployment, and then after military service. So we do a lot with our, our veterans and their families. And then our fifth line of service is international services. 
And that's where we do support our sister Red Cross agencies around the globe, um, like in the Bahamas when the hurricane hit uh, a couple years ago. You know, we provided technical support and some funding support to our agency, sister agency down there. And at the very local level, we have chapters. So every geographic location in the United States is covered by a Red Cross chapter. Here wow. in Utah, we have three chapters. Mine is the Greater Salt Lake Area chapter, which covers seven counties, kind of a central bound band across the state, going from Tooele County on the western border, straight across to Daggett and Uinta counties on the eastern border. Mm-hmm. Davis County northward is another chapter, and then Utah County southward is another chapter. Is, is there much coordination between the chapters? So like, do you coordinate it all with the the Davis County chapter or the Utah County chapter that's next to you? Yes, there, there is quite a bit of coordination. So our region that's next to the chapter level covers Utah and Nevada. And so within that region, all of the executive directors were constantly in communication, coordinating, sharing best practices, trying to leverage each other's contacts and services. So there's a lot of interaction and cooperation. Yeah. You, you shared the, you know, the five different things that the kind of Red Cross chapters do. Um, which, uh, which one, I guess, takes the most time for the local chapter that, that you do? What, what is your bed and, bread and butter, so to speak? You know, there are two lines of service, Blake, that I'd, I'd say to that. And they're based off of statistics. So about every eight minutes, the Red Cross is responding to a disaster. And we include house fires in that disaster response. Uh-huh. So even though here in Utah, we don't get hurricanes, uh, we did have an earthquake <laughs> <laughs> and we did have a tornado, but the tornadoes are not typical, right? Even though we don't have some of the disasters that hit other parts of the country regularly, we always have house fires and apartment fires. And so we are constantly responding to those. In fact, uh, just since last July 1st of 2020 up till December 2020, we had responded to, I believe, 54 different fires. And so, you know, across six months, what is that, almost 10 responses per month? Mm -hmm. So that takes up a lot of our, our time and resources. The other one is every two minutes, someone in the U.S. needs a blood transfusion or a blood product. Dale got back to me a little bit later and mentioned that he misspoke. It's not every two minutes someone in the U.S. needs a blood product. It's every two seconds. Or for some context, there's about two weddings uh, every two seconds. So about a wedding per second um, in, in the United States. So if you think about it, every time you hear of a wedding, you think of a wedding, you remember a wedding, you can also think of somebody needing blood. Uh, it really, I think, puts a m- remarkable perspective on how often people actually need these services. And so we are constantly collecting blood so that we can maintain an adequate supply. And the Red Cross as a whole in the United States provides about 40% of the nation's blood supply. So that's a constant demand that we are trying to meet every day. And so those two definitely take up a lot of our time. That's Remarkable. I, I knew uh, about blood drives because I've you know I've I've seen and and been signed up to to donate blood to the Red Cross. But I had no idea about the the house fire things. What what do you do 
to try and help in in that instance like, so say my house burns down and the red cross shows up what what are you you're, you're not bringing me blood what what are you bringing me what what happens yeah. we provide a number of services so we recognize that is such a traumatic event and mm -hmm. such an overwhelming difficulty put on that family so what we do is we show up with our volunteer team i might add uh, so these are individuals from our own community that just want to serve and help people they provide the emotional comfort and support to get them through those first few moments of shock and and trauma but then we continue with that family and provide them financial assistance to replace some of the critical things that that they lost mm -hmm. in the fire we help them get into temporary housing and then connect them with community resources for longer term housing and we help them meet immediate needs like prescription eyeglasses or medications that were lost in the fire or you know how do you go about replacing your social security cards or your birth certificates you know all of those little details that can be overwhelming in a situation like that we have our teams that walk alongside those families to help them get it done yeah that is amazing i i had no idea and you know when i think of of disasters I, I think of the the large scale you know the earthquake the tornado those type of things but but those house fires are are way more common you know way more um i guess likely to happen to a, a normal individual like i i think of it as uh, the the odds of me having the red cross help me at least i thought was fairly low but between the house fire and and blood stuff like there's a decent chance the red cross affects maybe not me directly but someone i care about um in some way during my life that's that's really remarkable yeah um absolutely you mentioned 40 percent of the nation's kind of blood comes from the red cross how do you how do you keep up with that demand and like like that is logistically has to be insane um, I, I'm curious, like as running a chapter, what's that like? What what is how do you keep up with demand in your chapter, and and what what do you have to do? What encompasses that? Can you share some of those details? Yeah, absolutely. And and before I share that, I I do want to share a statistic that I think helps show just how incredible the people in our community are. So over 40% of what the Red Cross does is provided by volunteers. I'm sorry, not 40%. That's our nation's blood supply. Over 90% of what wow. the Red Cross provides is accomplished through volunteers. So you put that next to the constant demand for blood supplies and providing that over 40% of the nation's blood supply and realize that so much of this work is being accomplished by your neighbors, the person down the road, you know, the person you see at the grocery store. I mean, these are just people that want to help and support others. And for me, that's a huge inspiration. The effort to collect that blood is definitely dependent on the donors in our community. And that's perhaps I'll call it a silver lining in this pandemic. Um, we've seen just a tremendous response from the community, people that want to do something and giving blood is truly giving life to another person. And one donation of blood can save up to three individuals. So 
Wow. You, you look at the impact that one person could have on three people. I mean, that could be a family, right? Uh, mother, father, child. Uh, yeah. Amazing, amazing. And uh, we've got a terrific team. Uh, everyone that touches the blood supply and the uh, collection of the blood, of course, are employees and have the medical certifications and, and licenses required to keep that safe. But then there's a whole infrastructure of volunteers anything from registering donors, recruiting donors, transporting the blood. Uh, it's a huge group effort. I, uh, I guess my interactions with, with the blood donations have always been something akin to someone signs around, you know, pass around a volunteer sheet somewhere, whether like a church or at a school and you, you know, they come on a certain day and they're in like a gymnasium and, and you give blood and get a cookie afterwards. But I'm, I'm just now realizing the logistical challenge of all of that of yeah. of how do you you know move people through in a queue to give blood and and move along like what does it take to set up something like that like if you say you know we're going to do it in a community and and go to a high school and have people come like what does it actually take to get one of those organized and, and running we rely on community partners that are willing to sponsor a blood drive and so what that means is it's an organization that's able to provide the physical space to set up our blood collection equipment and participate in recruiting donors to sign up for that blood drive. And you're absolutely right. It's a balancing act between the expense of those resources and labor that we're allocating to the blood drive and the expected response of the community that's going to donate. And so we, we definitely look at trying to optimize that efficiency so we're not over committing resources relative to the units collected. But also if we have a huge response from the community that we don't have blood donors waiting an hour for their appointment because we're overwhelmed yep. by donors. So yeah, there's quite a bit of scheduling and analysis that goes into that. Man. And uh, this just kind of a, a random question that, that I guess doesn't, uh, necessarily just correspond to the Red Cross, but how do you handle an organization where, you know, 90% of your workforce is volunteer, right? Where um, you can't fire them, so to speak, right? Like you're, they're, they don't have the incentive of being paid. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? And, and, you know, potential no-shows and other things where, um, you know, you don't have the traditional, you know, paid workforce and everything that goes into it. Um, I guess, what are, what are the downsides and what are the advantages? Well, one of the great things about the Red Cross is that we have very structured training in place. And so even if an individual is a volunteer, they receive training similar to what a full-time staff member would mm -hmm. receive. And so there are specific lanes of volunteering. Let's say, for example, a member of a disaster response team they have very specific and structured training that they will go through. And in fact, in some cases, Blake, when we respond to large disasters, there may be an instance where a volunteer is managing, let's say an emergency shelter and full-time Red Cross staff are actually reporting to that volunteer. And we wow. can do that because there is a credibility and quality control on the level of training that each of those volunteers have. And so we treat our volunteers 
very similar to the way we treat our staff members. And um, yeah, the challenges are in managing humans, just like any other sure. organization. Um, but we just are so grateful for our volunteers. I mean, we couldn't do this work without them. Uh, I mean, if 90% of your workforce is volunteer, you, you literally wouldn't be able to. But uh, but now I'm I'm all worried about the 40% of our blood supply that would disappear without all those volunteers. So they better keep uh, keep going. Yeah. Um, I'm through this conversation. I'm a little bit curious if there was a large scale disaster in your chapter, how would that work? Because I imagine it would, uh, you know, say a big earthquake, I don't know, uh, an inland tsunami on the great salt lake. Um, <laughs> right. Something, something that was a, a big thing that, that exceeded the resources that you would naturally have. How does, uh, you know, how, how do other chapters come in and help? How does that process uh, uh, come into play? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because the magna earthquake that we experienced back in 2020, uh, in fact, I believe it was March of 2020, is a great case study in response to your question. So this was a large scale disaster in terms of what our capacity is here in this chapter. And mm -hmm. so one of the great things with how interconnected Red Cross chapters are is we can pull and request resources and personnel from neighboring chapters. And outside of that, it's very common for neighboring regions to actually deploy staff and volunteers from that region to come in and support our disaster operations here. Hmm. A big part of that response, though, is working through our community partners. And that's a large part of what I do in my role is trying to build those partnerships before the disaster happens. So that mm -hmm. that channel of communication and that understanding between capacities is already established. So when the disaster hits, we're not trying to create a new relationship. We already have that established. So what type of community partners do you guys partner with? Local governments are a huge partner of us. Uh, Salt Lake County is just an amazing partner. They've supported us in disaster response, blood collections, um, local fire departments and police departments we also mm -hmm. are partnering with. Um, it's very common. In fact, it's, it's usually the process when a fire department responds to a residential fire, their next call will be to us to let us know about the incident. Hmm. Um, so those relationships are critical. And then we also have relationships with major corporations in the chapter, um, also nonprofit organizations. So other people that are delivering services um, that will complement what we can provide and we're able to work together. Wow. Do you, uh, you mentioned that, you know, uh, regions will lend out groups. Do you ever have your own chapter be lent out to help on disasters in other regions? Yeah. Yeah. We have actually, uh, especially with the last hurricane season. So we had several members of our chapter volunteers and staff deploy to Louisiana and Texas to support the disaster relief efforts there. Wow, I, I imagine that's an interesting experience. Uh, but you mentioned the training. Is the training similar across everywhere? So if I'm a volunteer or a staff member at one Red Cross, I can seamlessly integrate in with another? Yeah, that's precisely it. Um, it's standard. And then, of course, when they get on the ground, you know, it's, it's molded to meet unique local circumstances. But the foundation is the same and standard across. 
Nah, it's it's a really good model. Very smart to be able to to deploy like that. Um, you know, naturally, the, the thing that comes to mind, I guess, my question is, you know, when you think of disasters and scales, there's there's not really one that in my life is compared to to uh, COVID nineteen and kind of the global disaster that has caused. How obviously blood supply is a thing, but but how how else has the Red Cross responded to that? Right? I mean. It's affecting every chapter at once. It's uh, affecting everybody around the world. Um, how has that changed what you do? How are you responding to it? Um, what, I guess, what's life like at the Red Cross right now? Yeah, well, COVID-19 hasn't kept us from delivering each line of our services. So we're still providing disaster relief. We're still providing blood supplies. We're still training and certifying folks, supporting our military communities and, and supporting our international efforts. What has changed though, is the precautions that we take in each of those efforts to protect our clients, our volunteers and our staff. And mm -hmm. so very similar to many other agencies, personal protective equipment is standard in all of our activities, face masks, gloves, um, in some cases a, a face shield. And so we've uh, implemented that in all of our forward facing or client facing services. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, uh, sanitizing every surface that's shared between donors or clients or volunteers, those are regularly sanitized. And then we also screen anyone that we engage with, whether they're blood donors or volunteers or staff, for temperature and basic coronavirus symptoms. So for example, if I go to the chapter office today, I'll be screened for symptoms and I'll have to mask up, glove up, just like anyone else. And that's just to keep everyone safe. Hmm. We've also shifted to delivering as many services as we can virtually. So in many cases, that family that experienced a house fire will work with the fire department to get them on the phone or on a mobile device and connect with them that way. And then any financial support is an electronic funds transfer, or if it needs to be delivered in person through a cash card, uh, social distancing is, is maintained. Makes sense. Have you, uh, have any of the things that you deliver, uh, changed health wise to try and help with the pandemic as well? Yeah. In fact, right now, every blood donor or every blood donation is tested for COVID-19 antibodies. Hmm. So this isn't a diagnosis of the donor having COVID-19 or not, but what it does indicate is if that donor was ever exposed to the virus. And if so, did their body start creating these antibodies as part of its natural immune system to fight against that virus? That's important because it leads into the second blood product that we've collected in, to help with this pandemic, and that's called convalescent plasma. So this is plasma that's collected from individuals who have COVID-19 antibodies present within them mm -hmm. and who are healthy. And if they had COVID-19 as a diagnosis, they're fully recovered. What's special about that plasma is it's like a boost to the immune system. So we can collect that from someone who's recovered from COVID-19 and provide that to someone who's currently suffering with COVID-19 
and it boosts their immune systems and in many cases has helped expedite their recovery. Wow. I, I, so I've, I'd heard of that. I had no idea that the Red Cross was, was doing that. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, do you guys have percentages on, on how many people have antibodies? Like do you keep track of that um, uh, to, to see? And I imagine it's gone up over, uh, over the year. Um, is that something you're also keeping track of? Cause it seems like it'd be a valuable metric to try and just see, you know, which portion, cause it's kind of a random sampling of the population of, yeah. uh, how many people have antibodies in their system. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I might add that if an individual tests positive for those antibodies, then they could become eligible to donate then that convalescent plasma. So yeah, it definitely helps in that way. In terms of the date. Oh, go ahead. No, I would say I, I was just curious, do you let, so if I go in and give blood, do you then let me know if I have the antibodies uh, afterwards? Yes, I'm glad you asked that. Absolutely. Every donor is notified of the results of that test. And it usually takes one to two weeks. Sometimes it's faster. Uh, they'll receive those results through the Red Cross donor app if they've installed it on their smart device or through the blood donor portal on our website, redcrossblood.org. And then do you follow up with them, inviting them to be able to donate the plasma afterwards? Is that kind of how that process would work? In some cases, we're, we're getting to that point, though the administrative burden, uh, we haven't, I don't know that that's really a regular practice. Uh, kind of depends on the capacity of the individual blood collection region. Makes sense. The percentages, last time I checked, Blake, uh, were actually quite small. I want to say... 5.7% of our blood donors test positive for COVID-19 antibodies. So that means we are collecting convalescent plasma from a very, very small segment of the population, which is a challenge when there's such a high demand for those yeah. products. Um, the good thing is that one unit of convalescent plasma collected can help four different individuals. So that's, that's a bonus. Uh, but even so, we're still trying to keep up with the demand for convalescent plasma. And is it, a, is it just the same as the normal giving blood routine, right? The same, same experience for me if I go and give that type of plasma, or is it different? It'll be a little bit different. The intake process, of course, will be the same. You know, we'll keep you safe and, and sanitize everything so, so that you're healthy and our staff and volunteers are healthy. But it is a bit of a longer process because mm -hmm. we collect your blood and then remove the plasma from it and give you back your red blood cells, but keep the plasma. And so it is a bit of a longer process. How long do you, does it take? Like, What would be the commitment for somebody if they wanted to go and, mm -hmm. and do that? Uh, it depends on the individual. Uh, so there is some variation there, though. I would say plan on at least an hour, hour and a half. Okay. Yeah. And can anybody that's tested positive, can, is there a pretty good assumption if you tested positive, you have the antibodies to be able to go and, and give the plasma? There is a registration process where we evaluate potential donors. So there are some qualifying uh, measures that we need to evaluate before we do collect that plasma. And um, I, I guess the natural next question is if if somebody's test positive and, and they want to help, what's 
like how do they get in contact with their local Red, Red Cross chapter to be able to do that? Yeah, thanks for asking. It's very easy to connect with us. You can go to redcrossblood.org and put your zip code in the uh, search box. You'll see it there on the on the web page, and that'll pull up all of the blood drives that are closest to you. And then you can go in and you see which times are available and, and, and register that way. If you're particularly interested in do donating convalescent plasma, there's also a link on the website that will take you to the registration form where we'll collect some basic information and then a member of our team will follow up with you. I, I guess that leads me into my next question. If I want to help the Red Cross just in general, uh, you know, volunteering or, or 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 maybe donating. Like, what what things can I do to help? I, you know, I uh, the the plasma things count school, but as far as I know, knock on wood, I haven't had COVID. How how can I help at, at this point? Yeah, again, thanks for asking because, Blake, like I shared before, so much of our work is done through the generosity of donors and volunteers. In fact, one hundred percent of what we do is made possible by the generosity of our donors. So there are a couple different things. Financial donations are always needed and donors can rest assured that over 90% of every donor, dollar donated goes directly to those programs and services. The other way that folks can engage with us and support their community is by volunteering. We've got so many opportunities, anything from virtual volunteer efforts from your home and your computer to joining one of our disaster response teams that might be deployed to you know, the East Coast for hurricane relief, just as an example. And then the third way, which we were just talking about is donating blood. And that is a constant need. The shelf life of red blood cells is 42 days. So that product is constantly needing to be replenished. Platelets have an even shorter shelf life, five days. And those are most commonly used for children and cancer patients. So highly critical product that's needed. So blood donations are a terrific way to save lives and support your local community. And you mentioned if I want to give blood, the, the best way I think was to go to the, the website and put my zip code in and it'll show me the blood drives going on. And I can just sign up on one of those. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yep. That website's redcrossblood.org. Of course, if you just go to redcross.org, we've got links there that'll connect you to the blood donations or volunteering. But redcrossblood.org for blood donations, redcross.org forward slash volunteer now will take you straight to the volunteer page. And then for donations, go to redcross.org and you can submit that online. Awesome, and I guess one last question. If, if I'm a potential community partner, right? I'm working at a you know, fire station, local government, whatever, and we wanna be more involved with the Red Cross, what's the best way to get in contact with our local chapter? Yeah, I'd love to field any inquiries about that. So folks are welcome to reach out to me directly. Uh, my email address is del. Period. B-R-A-D-Y at redcross.org. So again, that's Dell period Brady at redcross.org. Awesome. Well, I hope you get inundated with uh, potential partners that, that want to help in some way. Uh, 
Dale, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing the work that you guys are doing. And thank you for the work that you do. Um, obviously, uh, you know, it's, it's important and needed. And, and I know that now, and hopefully everybody listened know that more now more than ever. Um, thank you really. Uh, and, and thank your staff. And if there was some way to thank all of your volunteers, thank them as well. Cause it's remarkable. It really is. Well, thanks, Blake. I appreciate that. And I'll definitely share the message with the team. Uh, thanks for the opportunity and thanks for what you do and all the other community partners. We're stronger together and there's no way we can do this alone. So we're grateful for everyone helping. Thank you for listening to The Business of Vulnerability. If you or somebody you know would be a wonderful guest for our next recording, please let us know at Team Pulse, it's T-E-A-M-P-U-L-S-E at pulseforgood.com. Thank you.